Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton and this is The Detail. Today, the world's criminal syndicates are desperate to get meth into New Zealand. They are now pushing for market share to try and control the business markets. Competing for their stake in the country's lucrative and destructive meth market. There is a glut of drugs, there is a, an abundance of supply organisations and they see New Zealand and Australia as a viable market. Why is New Zealand such an attractive market? The price we pay for our drugs. Sometimes the smugglers succeed, sometimes they don't. Enough meth to supply the country's users for six months has been stopped at the border in customs' largest ever bust. Just under 500 kilos of the Class A drug was found in a shipment of electric motors after an investigation into a transnational drug syndicate. That find this month is the latest in a huge year for meth seizures for both police and customs. This was in August. The police have seized more than 200 kilograms of methamphetamine worth almost $150 million in an Auckland drug bust. The drugs were found inside cardboard packing boxes stored in a wardrobe at a central Auckland apartment. And in July, another huge haul. This time, two Australians caught with 100 kilos of meth stashed in plastic pellets. In February, 110 kilograms inside golf cart batteries. As far as meth is concerned, 2019 has been... The biggest by far, um, with basically four months still to go, we've already had nearly 1,500 kilograms or 1.5 tonnes of meth either seized at the border or um, seized by the police. Jared Savage is an investigative reporter for the New Zealand Herald. To put that in context, the previous big record year was 2016, where there was 941 kilos seized over the entire year. We're already 50% bigger than that with, with four months to go. Um, yeah, a huge amount of pure methamphetamine that's been picked up. Yeah, and then if you want a, a real contrast, you look back, as I see in your piece, to, to what, 2003 when it became Class A and there was, what, three three kilos, was it? Yeah, there was, there was three kilograms picked up back in 2003. That's when it first became Class A. The government sort of had picked up on a lot of concern around, it was the, um, you know, the Samurai Sword, uh, Anthony Dixon murders. Anthony Dixon has given evidence in the trial that he was being followed by 747 aeroplanes, had bugs inserted in his body and has seen dancing gremlins and a triangle-shaped vision of God in the sky. That was at the very beginning of, of the methamphetamine sort of boom in, in the early 2000s and, and here we are 15, 20 years later and, and just huge amounts that I don't think law enforcement or anyone would have envisaged ever happening really because given that we're a small country at the, at the bottom of the earth but um, yeah here we are. Yeah and I mean whether you pick the, the three kilos back in 2003 or the previous record in 2016 the increase to this year is just it's jaw-dropping really. Why, why so much? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we do have a meth problem in this country. Um, I, I worked on a documentary earlier in this year um, in which we sort of looked at the, the evolution of meth here in this, in this country. You just turn into a soulless, hollow, empty, no thought for anyone else because all you're focused on is getting that drug. We have a huge um, problem with it. There's a lot of people using it. Because you're feeding their dirty little habits, you know, all of a sudden and you become like God to them. 
Wastewater testing, literally analysing the urine of New Zealanders, gives us a good steer as to what drugs we're using and in what quantities. New Zealanders consume a total of 16 kilograms of meth a week. It costs those users nearly $10 million a week. The police estimate the harm to society at about $20 million a week. That 16 kilograms of meth compares to 4 kilograms of MDMA or ecstasy and less than a kilo of cocaine. When it comes to meth, there are plenty of people ready to buy and vitally. The prices that we, that we pay for it here are much higher than, than the rest of the world and basically transnational organised crime groups cartels and in Mexico and South America as well as the more traditional organised crime groups in China and Southeast Asia, they've cottoned onto this. So we pay roughly $100 for every 0.1 of a gram. That's the, the unit in which most people would uh, consume methamphetamine, a point of a gram or a point. That's about $100. A kilogram of meth can be produced in Mexico or China for a few hundred or a thousand dollars. That is probably worth roughly $5,000 in Mexico once it's sort of sold or in, in the US if it goes through the border. You bring that same kilogram here, the market price for a kilogram is anywhere between $180,000 and $350,000. To reiterate those numbers, Meth goes for $5,000 a kilo in the United States and up to $350,000 a kilo here. That's up to 70 times the price in Aotearoa versus the States. Why is it so much more expensive here? The demand for it, simply put. I think, I think for whatever reason, it, 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 there is a very strong psychological grip that meth has. It's not physically addictive like say, for example, heroin, you don't have to go on a methadone program or similar to get off of it. We smoke a lot of it here. We're willing to pay those prices. And so it's just a typical supply and demand equation there. Australia and Japan also have very high consumption rates and very high um, prices comparatively to, to the rest of the world. Do we make any of it here? Is it all imported? This is an yeah, interesting point. This has changed quite a bit. So if we wind back to sort of the 2003, where only three kilos was picked up by the customs and police, around that time we were cooking a lot of it. You'll recall that one of the main ingredients is pseudoephedrine, which can be extracted from cold and flu medications. What the groups would do, or meth cooks would do, um, would, it was called pill shopping. They would, they would get people to go around the various pharmacies and buy 10, 20, 30, 100 packets of um, cold and flu medicine, which contained... Um, so there's a there's a kind of a chemical process in which you go through to extract it. As a result of that, various governments have brought in legislation clamping down on on the pill shopping. So then the pill shopping sort of stopped. It became an over the counter medicine. And then you recall in 2009. New Zealanders wanting cold and flu tablets containing pseudoephedrine will no longer be able to buy them over the counter. Pseudoephedrine is a so-called precursor drug to methamphetamine, or P. Limiting its availability to prescription only is part of a range of moves announced today to tackle the country's P problem. I guess we're asking New Zealanders to band together and to, to accept uh, using alternatives to treat their colds and flus to ensure that New Zealand no longer becomes one of the countries that's most heavily affected by P. And I think the, an outcome there will help all New Zealanders. The critics said at the time it's not going to do anything because we're simply either going to import pseudoephedrine itself from China, which is manufactured in large quantities, 
or methamphetamine in, a, in its pure form. So the, the evolution of meth changed around about 2009 then. Huge amounts of pseudoephedrine being imported from China. It, it is a legal medicine in China. Um, so basically criminal groups over there were getting large amounts of it, either directly from the factory or or buying it up around pharmacies in China and then shipping it here. You'd see these bags of, of, of pink pseudoephedrine coming in I would say now that the vast majority of it is now we've switched again into imports of pure methamphetamine coming from China, Southeast Asia, that sort of golden triangle. And, and the new thing which has come in the last sort of three to four years is the introduction of methamphetamine from Mexico and the Central Americas. The Sinaloa cartel, formerly led by Mexican drug lord El Chapo, is believed to be behind recent major drug fines at the New Zealand border. Yes, intelligence documents obtained by News Hub confirm meth made by Mexican cartels is the biggest problem for our law enforcement agencies right now. Customs told me that they believe the first shipment linked to Mexican or South American cartels was in about 2015. There was a shipment of batteries that came through they had about 80 kilos hidden inside. And since then, uh, I think Mexico or the Americas actually overtook China and Southeast Asia as the main source country for a wee while. We've seen a bit of a swing back to that recently. I'm not sure what that means, but clearly there's more than enough money to go around in, in the market. Um, so we're seeing it both sides of the, of the Pacific Ocean. With that as well comes some cocaine. Obviously, Mexican cartels are probably better known for... Um, producing and selling and distributing cocaine around the world. So we have seen an increase of cocaine as well coming here via these markets. We have a high price for cocaine uh, in New Zealand, as does Australia. So sort of, there has been, definitely been more cocaine found as well alongside the mess in the last few years. It's a notorious narcotic associated with glamour, the high life. But while the cocaine market's relatively small here, police say this 46-kilogram seizure from the Maersk Antares indicates a change in the tides. But for New Zealand, it is, it is mess because that's really what the demand is for. Customs was telling me the other week that they believe there's now a stockpiling of, of methamphetamines. Customs Investigations Manager Bruce Berry says they began to track a company set out to import large quantities of drugs and last month a major shipment of motors from Thailand was stopped. Concealed within the electric motors was a total of 469 kilograms of methamphetamine. Bruce, did you ever think you would see seizures of this size? Man, I've worked in this organisation for 36 years and most of that time in the investigations arena I've never thought I would see these, this type of numbers. Traditionally we would have had uh, an organised crime group or distribution group in New Zealand, normally the gangs, would be saying OK I can, I can deal with a kilo of drugs or five kilos of drugs can, and using their contacts have that sent to them so it was a just-in-time supply model. Now the, the cartels are organised, they're starting to send big shipments to, to pre-position their product for distribution. And we're seeing um, evidence that these are being imported without uh, distribution orders to hand. And so they're sitting on this and, and, and uh, using that to uh, provide a, a supply chain. Well, so whereas in the past they'd bring it in to order, if you like, whereas now they're just bringing it in because they know it'll get snatched up somehow. Exactly. So traditional supply and demand models, you would have a demand and someone would, would, would meet that supply. What they're doing is pushing the supply and then utilising that to go to go and feed the market as, as and when that, that demand becomes available. 
how are they getting this in? You name it, they're doing it. Oh, give me some examples. (laughs) Okay, so traditionally what we will see is smaller scale shipments being what we term shotgun through, where you will send 10 shipments of a kilo through the mail centre. And and knowing that some of that commodity will, will likely get through versus the large-scale shipments where you put all your eggs in one basket, i.e. the Operation Manta, with the motors. There's a lot of degree of advanced planning. It takes a long time to get that through, and you've invested your money for a longer period of time with a high degree of risk that if the law enforcement come across it, you've lost all your money. In terms of the actual containers that people put this in, what, what are some examples you've seen? Uh, you're talking about the uh, concealments? In yeah, general. the concealments, yeah. You name it, if you can think of it, we've seen it. Okay, I've said on many years my favourite concealment was uh, in a paste between biscuits and a packet of biscuits um, in a box that contained uh, a whole lot of personal effects. So it was one packet of biscuits that contained drugs and amongst all the stuff, how many packets of biscuits were manufactured offshore? Because they don't manufacture one. So this is where... In targeting these types of concealments, we utilise our international um, networks. We send out quick reports when we identify a new or an unusual type of concealment and send it through Send it through internationally so that we are able to share. Because we, we will see the same concealments in different parts of the world. How do you even know where to look, though? Because what's suspicious about a biscuit? Like this you look is, at a biscuit, and why do you? What makes you think? I think that that cream might have meth in it. This is this is this is where there's there's several aspects to this. One is the the information we get pre-border that enables us to do an initial risk assessment um, for known risk factors and known entities. Then there is the the on on the ground screening of 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 our officers at the front line who know what's normal and what's not. And then there's just officer intuition. The biscuits was officer intuition. They, they they were looking at something. They said, this isn't quite right, so they kept on looking. And the, their good work results in, in, in community harm being avoided because they make the seizure. You know, we play a game of cat and mouse with our, um, with our adversaries, so I think we sort of block some channels and then they look to push it through some others. Is any of this a matter of more being seized rather than more coming in? I think it's a, it's, it's a really difficult question. If you look at the wastewater analysis results that have come out that, that have suggested that um, Operation Manta, the, the 469, was around six months' worth of national consumption. And then you consider that the 1.5 tonnes would equal 18 months' consumption. It, that would indicate we're getting more than we're missing. It's it, it's a very difficult one to be able to, to ascertain. And, and as you go into the, the stockpiling considerations, one shipment could, could actually mean uh, it, it skews our, our our analysis. What we're starting to see, though, from the wastewater results is when we make a big seizure that there is a drop in usage. So we think we're having a bigger effect on the market, but I do think it is a two-prong approach. You can't just tackle supply. you also got to tackle demand, and that's one of the government initiatives in terms of, of addiction services and also treating, starting it from both ends of the of the spectrum. Is Customs more worried about the the one-off big ones that come in or the steady stream of smaller parcels coming in? That's the balance we have to bring to this. The, the d- disruptive effect of a large-scale interception 
is offset by the volume of smaller scale that comes through. So customs is in quite a unique position compared to some of our other agencies in that seizure is disruption. So we can take a, a consignment out and it, and, it, and it costs the syndicate money. Now, the wider effect of distribution and that when we can, we can say, look, that's not really our major concern. We will play with those ones, i.e. we will follow up and do investigative activity where we see there's a, a disruptive effect that can be enabled, i.e. go up, go up the, the chain and follow the money through to be able to disrupt the wider organised um, operations, organised crime groups operations. Um, but we try and pick and choose which ones we play with for that effect. It makes it difficult because you know that, that there are good good interceptions that could take us somewhere being made every day by good work through our targeting and our frontline operations teams. Um, and it's frustrating for them to see us taking such volumes of drugs out of, the, of, the, of those other streams that aren't being investigated, but you can only do so much. Are you expecting the amount coming in to, to increase? Look, the seizure numbers we've got are just numbers. They, they are going to increase, and, and we can fully expect to have bigger and larger-scale seizures. In the US, in the last few weeks, they took out 18 tonnes of cocaine in one, one importation stream. 18 tonnes yeah. in one? What, how did they... What was that in? In, in containerised sea freight out of South America going mm. to the States. Then they actually seized the, the, the commercial ship that was transporting them. Um, you've got 1.7 tonnes of methamphetamine that was taken out in Australia in the last last few months. These are a supply and demand model where bulk provides efficiencies to the to the to the organisations, um, and that's and that's what their business model is. They are now pushing for market share uh, to try and control control the business markets. We're seeing the same in terms of the organised crime elements in New Zealand. They are. Uh, collaborating and um, becoming more confrontational with each other as as they go through their their own market share distribution chains. Jared Savage again. Police and customs, each time that they make a, a successful seizure or dismantle a syndicate, they are learning how you know these groups are working, and so therefore, but they're always sort of one step behind, I suppose. You know, they're, as they're learning the different methods of how it's being concealed and brought in. The criminal groups, they're looking at the next way that they're going to do things, if that makes sense. They're always sort of one step ahead. I think really, if, if there's, I'm not sure there's anything, such thing as a solution, but I think tackling the demand is probably going to be more, as a society, uh, we're probably going to make more inroads tackling demand than we are tackling supply. As to your question around will organised crime change, yeah, undoubtedly will. I probably couldn't give you an answer as to how that might evolve, but I think what we've seen in other countries is corruption, official authorities, figures uh, on the take, and we haven't really seen that in New Zealand. There are there are instances of it, but I think with the amount of money floating around now, the sophistication of some of the people involved, I think that could be somewhere where that might change in the future. We need to be vigilant on that. I think some of the violence that we we might sort of only really link to, say, you know, Narcos on Netflix, you know, really only seen overseas. I think we'll, we'll see that a bit more here. I mean, the mess market in the last 15 years, at least, anyway, there's been enough business to go around. So everyone just kind of had their own, 
had their own turf and their territory and everyone kind of, you know, we'd seen instances of previously rival gangs who might have been having fights on a Friday night getting together and working together to make money because there was so much money and, and that was good for everyone. Violence and death attracts police attention, so it's better for criminal groups to be not attracting attention to themselves by, uh, you know, shooting guns at each other or killing each other. Um, so there's been kind of, not an alliance, but you know, gangs have kind of, you know, I guess some of the traditional rivalries been put aside in the interest of making making money. What's a good day for a for for customs? Is it one where you don't intercept anything, so you think perhaps it's not coming in, or is it a day where you have a big seizure? If you asked any of my staff what a good day was, they'd say turning up to work because we're motivated to protect New Zealand and and seeing results is what we're about. Um, being able to disrupt um, our adversaries, I guess you'd call them, um, there is nothing better in terms of going home for a better work story. That's the detail for today. I'm Alex Ashton. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and produced by Alexia Russell. Our associate producer is Kaitaki Masalamani. Ka nui tēnei. Thank you.